Welcome back to the Elephant in the Womb podcast. Please be aware that this podcast is intended for informational purposes only. The information on this podcast should not be used as a substitute to medical advice or medical treatment. As always, your primary care provider, a doctor, or another health professional is your best resource for specific questions and medical advice. If you believe you or a loved one are experiencing a medical emergency, please contact 911. So today I'm talking with Kayla, the pediatric sleep specialist. Um, I've spoken with her before about all different kinds of things related to sleep. So I'm really excited to have her on the podcast to talk a little bit about SIDS and safe sleep, and then to answer a couple of questions we had submitted to us. So Kayla, if you just want to introduce yourself for those of the listeners who didn't uh, see our last interview. Absolutely. So my name is Kayla Solomon, and I am a certified pediatric sleep specialist. And my focus is on um, helping parents get sleep without the use of sleep training. And I think that's really the key to everything that I do with families is making sure that we are not ever putting parents in a position where they are doing anything that makes them feel uncomfortable because anything that makes you feel uncomfortable to me is sleep training. So whether that's leaving your baby to cry or not holding them while you're in the room with them, whatever it might be, um, if you are uncomfortable, your baby is likely also uncomfortable. And so my goal is to help parents find sleep solutions through responsive parenting practices that allow them to answer their baby's needs and at the same time answer their own by getting more sleep. And I think also there's a lot of families who have tried that path and that's when they come to me when they realize that, you know, first of all, a lot of people don't know that there's another alternative to traditional sleep training. And so for a lot of parents, they feel a lot of pressure to sleep train when their kids get to a certain age. And so they try it or they go through with it and then something happens and it no longer works. You know, parents who say like, I sleep trained, but then my kid got a new tooth or we went on vacation or the clocks changed and everything went out the window and I had to start again. And so I often work with families who have sort of gone down the path of sleep training, whatever that looks like in their own home, um, and then realized it wasn't the right thing for them. And that that's actually how I initially got into this field to begin with. Um, I have three kids. My oldest is six. And when she was six months old, we were understandably exhausted, as most parents with a six-month-old are. <laughs> yes. And we, we felt a lot of pressure to sleep train. We didn't know that there was an alternative at the time. And so we hired a sleep consultant who said, okay, this is what we're going to do. And we were very clear that cry it out wasn't the right weight for us. So we started with a more gentle approach, but the deeper we got into it, the more she basically said, you know, if you either have to do cry it out or never sleep again. And so at that point we tried it, it didn't work for us and we parted ways. And it was soon thereafter that I found that there are other options to make sure that you can still put boundaries in place, still get sleep for yourself and for your child, but not go down that path of Ferber or the sleep lady shuffle or any of these other programs that, you know, put separation between the parent and the child because separation doesn't have to be the only way to get better sleep. I think parents don't have to feel pressure to either cry it out or wait it out. There is that middle ground. And that's what I hope to provide people is, you know, the understanding that like, I'm also coming into this as a parent and I know what's reasonable and what's, you know, not. And that at the end of the day, like sometimes we do things just so that we can get some sleep at night and that's okay too. 
Listen, at the end of the day, like there's no hard and fast rules about sleep. And so you do what works for you. And that looks different in every home. And for some people, that means that they, you know, only have their baby sleeping in a solitary sleeping environment. For some people, it's like constant co-sleeping because that's what works for them. And there's no right or wrong to any of that. It's what works for you. And if, you know, in any particular moment, you feel like you got to just you know, do something that isn't necessarily what you would normally do, but it gets you more sleep at the end of the day. That's the goal is to get sleep. So whatever works, works. Yeah. And it's going to be so different for every family situation. Yeah. And for every baby, like you can have one family who have multiple children who require different approaches based on their temperament. And that's also something that I always talk to families about is, you know, recognizing who your child is. Because if you have a baby who's very easygoing, it's a different approach and a different need than a child who's highly sensitive. And then you were saying like, um, basically like when it comes to sleep, there's going to be a different uh, approach for everyone that works for everyone to get sleep. So in terms of safe sleep, how do you approach that conversation when it's maybe like a non-traditional sleep method or anything like that? So I I never suggest to parents who are not already bed sharing to start doing that because I think Mm -hmm. it's a very personal choice. Mm -hmm. Um, But the first thing that I'm always looking for is that if families are doing any form of co-sleeping, that it is being done safely. And so co-sleeping is sort of like the overarching word that describes any kind of sleep that isn't solitary sleep. Um, And so there are many ways to go about that, you know, room sharing, um, sidecar sleeping, uh, bed sharing, or any combination thereof. And so I always recommend at the very least room sharing for the first year of life, because that is what's recommended by the Canadian Pediatric Society and the American Academy of Pediatrics, because there have been many studies that show a reduction in the risk of SIDS when babies are in the same um, room as their parents for the first year of life. So I always recommend that, but when it comes to things like sidecar sleeping and bed sharing, when I'm working with my clients one-on-one, I first have them read and sign off on the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines Mm -hmm. and the um, Safe Sleep 7 guidelines Mm -hmm. so that I know that they're starting from a place of education because I think for a lot of parents, they're co-sleeping sometimes out of, um, you know, a a desire to do it and sometimes out of just desperation. And so it's important to make sure that if you are coming from that place of desperation and you haven't had the chance to sort of research safe sleep ahead of time, that we're starting from that. So I always have parents review and sign off on those guidelines. And I also have them send me photos of the sleep space so that if there is anything that jumps out to me as potentially unsafe, I can flag that for them. But in general, if you're talking about a bed sharing environment, the most important things are those safe sleep seven. So the, the big things are to make sure that the parents are non-smokers yeah. um, because there are risk factors involved with SIDS for smoking parents, um, that the parents are sober and unimpaired, so no drug use or anything like that. Um, in particular, bed sharing is safer, like studies are showing this, when it is a breastfed baby for a number of reasons, but one of the more common reasons is that if you think about a breastfed baby who is co-sleeping, the baby is more likely to be positioned closer to the mother's chest as opposed to closer to the parent's heads. And there are more risks involved with the baby being closer to the parent's heads because there's pillows involved. There's the gap between the bed and the headboard potentially. And so if you are a breastfed, a breastfeeding parent, um, your baby's going to be positioned differently in the bed. And that 
positioning. Um, if you read, there's a great book called safe infant sleep by Dr. James McKenna. He's a sleep anthropologist and he's coined the term breast sleeping because it's a position specifically for breastfeeding relationships that actually protects kids from SIDS. So that's one of the other sort of big pillars of safe sleep is, um, a breastfeeding infant. Now there are a lot of studies that talk about, um, bed sharing being safe for non breastfeeding infants after the age of four months, yes. but before four months, it's more just for, for breastfeeding babies. Baby has to be healthy and full term. Um, I definitely don't recommend bed sharing with a preemie baby should be on their back, which I think is the one thing that all parents know about safe sleep is that, you know, back is best campaign was really, really successful. Yes, it was. Um, yeah, it's really, really important. Um, and then also that the baby is appropriately dressed. So no heavy blankets, no heavy sleep sacks. Mm -hmm. Um, I could talk for hours about swaddling, so I won't bore you with any of that, but I actually (laughs) don't recommend swaddling. Um, we'll have to talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. We could do a whole other podcast on swaddling. That's like a whole other can of worms to open, but (laughs) lightly dressed is the big thing and that you're both on a safe surface. So if you are sleeping in the family bed, the bed should be firm. There shouldn't be any gaps, any cords. Um, ideally the mattress is on the floor. So there's no risk of falling, things like that. And so as long as those are all being covered and you know, the parents feel comfortable doing it. I'm comfortable working with families who are bed sharing for sure. Um, but I don't usually say like, okay, if your baby's in their crib, you should definitely move them into the family bed. No. If, and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that makes but, total sense. Yeah. I don't do that, but I'm more than happy to work with families who have babies sleeping in whatever space that they're sleeping in. And again, we work with what is working for you. And so you know, if I have a family who says solitary sleep is, is absolutely what I need to work with, then we work around that. Um, the only time I actually do recommend bed sharing is if the parents tell me that they're spending a lot of time sleeping in a chair or on the sofa, because that is like a big, big no, no, when it comes to co-sleeping, that's much more dangerous than sleeping in a bed. And so if they're already doing things like that, I'll say to them, you know, if you're going to be, you know, holding your baby or sitting in a chair or anything like that, I do recommend like looking at the safe sleep guidelines, and sleeping in bed instead because it is safer. Yeah, and I know Safe Sleep 7 talks about that. Um, yeah. The preferred space is obviously somewhere with a firm mattress, not a exactly. chair, not a sofa. Exactly. And actually, like the that. American Academy, Academy of Pediatrics recently updated their guidelines. They are not for bed sharing, but they did recently update their guidelines to say that it is safer. There are times when it is safer for a baby to be bed sharing. And here are some of those times. And those were the things that they had listed, you know, armchair, couch, things like that. Yeah. Um, so they, they also acknowledge that bed sharing can potentially be safer than some other situations. Yeah. And I did notice that actually in the joint statement on sleep from Canada as well. So they've yes. echoed the same sentence. Exactly. And then in terms of SIDS, like it, how do you approach that conversation with parents? I know it's a big anxiety. Like I remember, and I know like quite a bit about SIDS. I mean, it's still a highly unexplained area. Right. Um, but when my husband and I got home, I remember nights where we were like sitting up, looking at watching her breathe. <laughs> yeah. Or putting our hand on her chest. Yes. Like, okay, yeah, she is breathing. We're good. We're good. Or you'd wake up suddenly in the night and you'd be like, is she breathing? Yep. 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 I've so, been there. So Lots listen, of anxiety. What, I, what I normally tell parents is that you have to trust your instincts. And so 
I don't have an issue with you putting your hand on your baby's chest to make sure they're still breathing. The most important thing is that you are in tune with what your gut is telling you. And so if that means that you're waking up to check on your baby, that's probably what you should be doing. And there are a lot of studies that show that when it does come to SIDS risk, a lot of the time, part of the issue with the SIDS studies in general is that it's mostly looking at um, issues where the baby was in a solitary sleep environment or the baby passed away from SIDS in an environment, in a bed sharing capacity, where they did not follow safe sleep guidelines. Yes. If you look at all the research that Dr. James McKenna has done, he talks a lot about the protective mechanisms, especially when it comes to babies who are breastfed, um, that help a parent protect their baby from SIDS. Because what ends up happening, and this is his whole breast sleeping thing, Mm -hmm. is that the baby and the breastfeeding partner's um, breathing becomes in sync and so do their sleep cycles. And so what happens a lot of the time is if the baby has a pause in breathing, the parent wakes up immediately and is able to rouse the baby. And so I always tell parents that you should, like you have this built-in innate um, detector when it comes to your children in everything that they do. You always know best because you are their parent and you should follow your gut. And so if you feel like something's not right or if something has a risk factor, then you should follow your gut in that. But the best thing that you can do as a parent is follow these guidelines and then sort of work off of that. But always, always trust your instincts. Yeah, I think that's really important. I do notice that when we do bed share, because I just recently, when I published that blog post today, I did say like we have had to bed share. Obviously, my preferred like scenario is that we sleep by ourselves because we both honestly sleep better in that situation. But when we do bed share, I do find myself waking up pretty much right before the baby. Right before she does. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's almost like eerie. Yeah. Uh, but it happens naturally. And even in her own room, I notice sometimes I wake up and then I hear her crying a couple minutes later. So it's almost like it's so in sync. It's kind of creepy. It's nature. Like that's how parents and babies were meant to sleep. Like if you look at, you know, sleep environments across the world, it's sort of an anomaly in North America that bed sharing is looked down upon because in most places in the world, that's the norm. And it's the norm because it does have this protective factor. Now, I'm not saying at all that parents should, you know, only do bed sharing. I don't knock anybody who chooses not to. Every family is different. Every baby's different. And parents should do what they feel is comfortable. Mm -hmm. But I think that the reason that I talk so much about bed sharing and co-sleeping in general is because I think there's a lot of conversation about how solitary sleep should be handled. And there's a lot of shame put on parents and guilt put on parents for bed sharing when the reality is when you look at the studies, 50% of parents, there was a study recently done in the US, 50% of American families say that they bed share some or all of the time. And so if we have the majority of the population doing these things, my goal is to make sure that they're at least doing it safely. Yeah, and that's exactly what I just talked about in the blog post. Like as a healthcare provider, um, I find that people are very like, it's either this way or the highway. Yeah. And that attitude doesn't work for very no. many health issues beyond no. infant sleep. You tell someone they can't smoke, that's not going to work. You right. need to support them. Like, well, let's try reducing smoking. Exactly. Let's try to reduce your risk. It should be the same conversation we're having around baby sleep. Yes, you're going to bed share whether I tell you not to or not. 
probably right. in many situations. So let's yeah, try like at three in the morning, work. if your baby is not sleeping, you're not going to just keep picking them up and putting them down on the crib. God, Eventually, no. you're going to get tired and you're going to bring them into bed. So let's yeah. make sure that parents have the correct information to do that in a safe way. Yeah, because by providing them with that information, we are reducing risks. Absolutely. So that is the goal. And we, we kind of have to meet people where they are and work around what works for them. Because like in my situation, it, that was happening, especially during teething episodes or growth spurts. Yeah. Um, usually she sleeps pretty well in her own room. But during those times, she wants to be close to me. And I like I didn't want to spend all night awake. <laughs> Yeah. in her room really want, yeah like is that odd and I didn't want to fall asleep in the rocking chair yeah. holding her because yeah. I was really tired and my husband works in a field where he's using machines so he can't be sleep deprived to right. an extreme amount every single right. night because it's dangerous for him yeah it's dangerous for me driving the car with the baby in it the next day if I yeah. haven't slept yeah so after like talking about that with my husband and we talked about it with our midwives initially very early on and then again with our provider we kind of said well like they they said well this is what you guys can do to make it safer and that's what we've done when we do do it and it works for us because it keeps everyone and like we talked about earlier it helps everyone get sleep right which is and that's the end goal the end goal is sleep that's the thing with all of this is there shouldn't be you know, hard and fast rules around how you get to that endpoint because sleep, if first of all, sleep is a biological function. So it's not something you can force, but at the same time, it's a biological function that needs to happen. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you have ways of optimizing that, that is the end goal. It, there's no like model that everybody has to follow. It's just a matter of doing what you need to sort of get through those first few years. Yeah. And sleep is so important for like daily function, alertness, especially when you're taking care of a young baby. And then people who have postpartum depression and stuff, they need their sleep. Uh, Sleep is so like central to mental health. It's so central to other chronic conditions that you might develop after pregnancy. Like there's so many reasons why we should be more open to discussion and less judgmental when people approach the topic of sleep. Yeah. And, you know, try to meet people halfway and work with them to find a solution. Yeah, I I could not agree more. And actually, when I speak to all of my clients, the mental health piece is actually sort of what leads our conversation. And I usually spend the first week of our work together talking about how we can reduce stress for parents, how we can, you know, add in self-care so -hmm. that they're not pouring from an empty cup so that when we do begin to do sleep work, they're at a place where they're already taking care of themselves so they can then properly care for their baby. Because if we aren't taking care of ourselves, it's not possible to have patience and, you know, look at things from the big picture. It's you're very in the moment. It's very stressful. And taking that time for self-care and to, you know, acknowledge whether you're struggling or not and, and you know, handle um, making changes around that is so critical to everything we do as parents, but particularly with sleep. For sure. And I always like push the mental health aspect with people as well and the self-care because yeah. it seems silly like, oh, self-care, whatever. Like I know some people laugh at it. My clients always laugh at me. (laughs) I had a call with a family yesterday where we were talking about self-care. And for women, it's actually usually easier to identify what it is that self-care looks like. It's a shower, it's a yoga class, it's a good meal, it's a book. For men, it's more challenging. And so I was laughing on this call yesterday with this client when we were talking. 
he was sort of like, well, the only thing I can think of that I do for self-care is video games. I was, and I was just like, you have, say that. Yeah, <laughs> you have my permission this week to spend time playing video games because if that gives you the outlet that you need to fill your cup so that you're at a point where you can make changes, you do you. Like whatever that looks like for you is 100% fine. And I think that when it comes to moms, that maternal mental health piece is really often overlooked. And I really mm-hmm. try to you know, allow moms the space to acknowledge whatever they're feeling and give their partner the skills to then support them. And so one thing that I always share with my infant families is a postpartum questionnaire. It's actually part of my Instagram link in bio. Like I always share that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really an opportunity for moms to sort of self-evaluate where they are and then use that as a conversation starter with their primary health provider so that they have a reason to start the conversation. Because I think that's also one of the difficulties, especially for women, is to say, I need help. We're always the ones who are, you know, the caregivers and asking for help ourselves is very difficult. But if we are struggling mentally or emotionally, everything else is going to suffer as well. So true. And it's so important to initiate that conversation. So I'm glad that you give people like a reason to do it because that's the struggle. Half the struggle is just bringing the starting the conversation exactly Exactly. and finding a window to do it because there's so much going on in postpartum yeah it it, you're right it often gets overlooked like I know my midwives were really on top of asking mental health questions in my follow-up but I know that's not the same for example people who see an OB they don't see the OB till six weeks afterwards you're and it's like a quick in and out Yeah. yeah it's not it's not the focus And even if it is, like, even if your OB says to you, like, how are you feeling? It's a very awkward conversation to have. And I don't know that a lot of moms by six weeks really have a handle on how they're doing mentally and emotionally. No, not at all. I think it takes time to, you know, settle into what's going on and realize whether or not you're struggling. And usually when I speak to parents, it's not parents of six weeks old. It's parents of, you know, three or four month old babies. And at that point, mom recognizes that she's struggling and she just doesn't know how to ask for help because everything is about baby. And so I do hope that sharing that questionnaire gives people the ability to start the conversation. You know, you fill it out yourself, you score yourself, and then you can take it to your doctor and say, Hey, you know, I just filled out this questionnaire. I'm wondering what you think of my results. And then you don't even have to say, I need help. You have a reason to start the conversation. And I think that if you take that approach, it's much easier and parents are going to be able to get the help that they need. And I think that once you are taking care of yourself and acknowledging where you are emotionally, it's then much easier not only to make changes with sleep, but also to deal with the sleep deprivation. Yeah, that's so true. I actually love that idea. Like, I'm so happy that you do that because... there's just so many women suffering silently when they don't need to and when they shouldn't and they need the support it's just the access that's difficult so I agree and is there anything else you wanted to talk about in regards like safe sleep or SIDS I think that it's really just a matter of parents being informed and educated and so like I said I really recommend um, looking up safe infant sleep by Dr. James McKenna I Mm -hmm. really really love his book Um, it's very technical and very scientific study based. So if that's not your thing, it might be a little boring for you, but if you are looking for, you know, scientific fact that shows why, um, bed sharing can be safe and in what circumstances it's safe, it's a really, really interesting read. But I think that just the key is making sure that you use common sense in knowing, you know, what could be safe and what can't, and just trust your gut and in checking on your baby too.
Okay, and then we got a couple of questions. Uh, actually, quite a few questions. A lot. <laughs> yeah, uh, people were, are always dying to ask Lee questions, I find, because it's so central to, like, everything else they do. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the first one I got was, how do I get my seven-week-old to transition from deep sleep to light sleep successfully? She wakes up every night at bedtime. The thing with, and this sort of goes back to the conversation on SIDS, the thing with getting a baby into a deep sleep is that you actually, and this is probably not what this mom wants to hear, but <laughs> it's actually better for your baby, especially an infant, to not be in too deep of a sleep because that's when you see a higher risk with SIDS. Yeah. Babies have shorter and lighter sleep cycles for a reason, and it's because if they get into too deep of a sleep, they basically forget to breathe. And so that's where you do see more of that SIDS risk. And so it is very frustrating as a parent to have a baby who wakes up right away, but there is a protective mechanism there. And so part of it is just sort of acknowledging that that's natural and normal and healthy. And that I think sort of helps parents be okay with the idea of them getting a little bit less sleep because they know that it's a protective mechanism. But if you are finding that you're going to do bedtime and every time you put your baby down, they wake up immediately, I'd probably want to look at the big picture and see if the baby's overtired because usually that's the key. Once you get baby into a deep enough sleep that you put them down, you should at that age, at seven weeks, at the very least get one sleep cycle out of them. So roughly 45 minutes. If you're not, if you're getting 10 minutes, let's say they probably aren't either in a deep enough sleep to be put down or they're potentially overtired because they're not getting enough daytime sleep to be able to settle into a longer stretch for that first stretch of the night. Right. Do you have any, this is, I, this isn't a question that was asked in advance, but just thinking of maybe what this mom might ask, any suggestions if they are overtired, like to increase daytime napping? So my big thing with, with newborns is sleep by any means necessary, number one. Yes. And contact naps because it is totally unreasonable and there's so much pressure put on moms to do this it's totally unreasonable to expect a newborn to separate for sleep all the time oh my so God, yeah. some newborns are good at it most are not and so you are not doing anything wrong by holding your baby to sleep by baby wearing by letting them nap on you i have no problem with any of that and with a newborn, you sort of have to just surrender yourself to the fact that that might be your life for a few weeks or potentially longer. <laughs> Pick a good podcast to listen to. Yeah, good um, Netflix to watch. Exactly. Pull up an iPad, like let your baby sleep on you and just sort of be okay with the fact that it's okay to spend your days having your baby nap on you because getting that sleep during the day will hopefully give you at least for part of the night, longer stretches of sleep. Yeah, we spent a lot of time baby wearing in the early yeah. months. It was it was honestly like it was nice because I it was hands free at least, right? Exactly. And you can still do a couple of things, quiet things, and baby gets the nap in, and then they're not dead tired at night, and you're not having exactly. that struggle. I think that baby wearing is actually something that new moms should be told more about because I think yeah. most of the time, what ends up happening is moms don't really discover baby wearing until baby's like old enough to be like going out on outings or they discover it like in the newborn stages with baby number two. I don't know a lot of first time moms who are like, yeah, I need that ring sling or I need that Catan because <laughs> they, it's just, they don't know that they need it. And like, if there's one thing I can tell new moms to add to your baby registry, it's a good baby carrier. <laughs> it's always what I have put on like lists when I recommend yeah. it for people. And like, yeah. we use that probably the most of right. almost everything we got. Right. And like some of them take a while to figure out, but it is worth putting the effort in to figure out how to wrap that thing up because it can save your life. 
Yeah, it's. I have to admit, it's really hard to figure them out without the baby. Like, if you're trying to figure yes. it out before, don't do it while you're pregnant. <laughs> no, because my it's husband impossible. and I did that, and we were like, "What is this thing? It's horrible." It's horrible. Then, when once we had the baby, it was like, "Oh, okay, yeah. now it makes sense." <laughs> you know, there are lots of good baby wearing educators that, if anybody's interested, I'm happy to give them their contact information. That that's what they specialize in, and they can sort of help you figure out how to do things and how which carrier is best for your body type, things like that. I actually, I have a newborn nephew. And so I was doing a little demo for my sister a few weeks ago and I filmed it and I haven't had a chance to post it, but I will post a tutorial on how to use the baby Catan because that's my favorite one. But find a baby wearing expert in your area because that is like so critical to getting through those first few months is doing those contact naps. And the second question was, my baby is transitioning from three to two naps and sometimes skips a nap and only takes one because the times are off. What can I do on the days my baby misses a nap so that she will still go to sleep on time? Kind of what I already asked. Um, are there ways I can encourage napping when she's fighting it? So usually when a baby's fighting a nap, it's a good indication that they're ready to drop the nap. And so that transitional time is really the toughest because... A lot of the time they're showing signs of being ready, but they're not like a hundred percent there. So what you can do is basically just test it out. Like if you are transitioning from three naps to two, do a day where you have three naps. And then if it's not working the next day, do a day with two naps. And what you might have to do is move bedtime earlier for a few days while they're doing that transition. Um, just so that they're not going to bed up overtired, but specifically from three naps to two naps, the best thing to do is to make the longest wake window of the day between nap one and nap two. Okay. Because what I see a lot is parents being told that they should have their kids on this ridiculous two, three, four schedule. And the problem with two, three, four is that your biggest window of the day is before bed. And you know, the thought behind it is to build up that sleep pressure, but it's a very fine line between building the right amount of sleep pressure and getting an overtired baby. And if you get an overtired baby, you're going to start seeing false starts. And so, especially if your baby is in that transitional phase, I would recommend making the biggest gap of the day between nap one and nap two so that you're not dealing with an overtired baby come bedtime. And the next one, um, baby just learned to sit up and is doing so at nighttime. Of course. They can't find their way back to laying down. Do you have any tips? Yes. Okay. So any, not just for sitting, but anything developmental, anytime you see any kind of developmental leap, the best thing to do is practice, 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 and then practice some more during the daytime, but also in their sleep space. Because what ends up happening is that babies basically end up practicing this new skill in their heads and it wakes them up at night and then they're doing it at night. And then you're going to be finding yourself, you know, if you have a sitting baby, you're going in and lying them down. If you have a baby that's learning to stand, you're going in and trying to get them to like not jump out of the crib. Yeah. And so the best thing that you can do is spend what seems like an exorbitant amount of time during the day practicing that new skill and you can make a game out of it. So I'm actually working with a family right now who's having that issue with the baby learning how to stand. And so one of the things that we're doing is we're having them do playtime in the crib where the baby's being encouraged to stand up and mom's playing peekaboo with the baby and getting the baby to sit down again. And so it becomes both practice time, but also it makes the sleep space feel safe for the baby to then separate from mom when she's hiding so that the baby isn't nervous to separate at night. So the best thing to do is spend a ton of time during the day practicing the new skill. That, and that's kind of fun too. It's like a, yeah. it's like a game. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> exactly. Next question. My baby wakes up at 4.30 to 5 a.m. every day. She's happy when she wakes up, but then exhausted by 7 a.m. 
We already have blackout curtains. How else can I help her sleep later? Okay, so it probably has to do with a scheduling issue. If baby's waking up happy at 4.30 or 5 in the morning, then we need to look at shifting the entire schedule. Without seeing everything else that's going on, it's hard to give really specific advice. But the best thing I would say is don't do a super early morning nap because if you continue to do, you know, let's say a 7 a.m. or 7.30 a.m. nap, you're basically just supporting that early wake. And so what you're right. going to want to do is slowly start moving the schedule back so that you get nap one to a more reasonable time. And hopefully that'll push the rest of the day out so that baby will no longer be waking at 4.30 a.m. I mean, early rise is a really tough one because it's natural for babies to wake up early. But usually what I what I consider like a normal early rise is like starting the day at 6 a.m. Anything yeah. before 6 a.m. I sort of consider still being the middle of the night and we yeah. have to look at the cause for those early rises. But it sounds to me like it could potentially be a scheduling issue. So whoever so that is should reach out to me. And my son needs a pacifier to sleep but he spits it out every 40 minutes at night and wakes himself up. <laughs> I've tried cutting it out cold turkey and I tried taking it away once he dozes off, but neither worked. What else can I do to help him sleep without it? So it's similar to the whole developmental idea in that it's a lot of practice to like teach him how to get the passy back into his mouth on his own. And I would buy like, you know, 10 or 15 passies, literally. Yeah, keep them all in the bag. And just scatter them around the crib. So, and like what I do with my son actually, which also sounds kind of insane. In addition to the one that's in his mouth when he goes to sleep, once I put him in the crib, I tuck one into the palm of his hand <laughs> so that if he does wake up, it's right there for him and he can just stick it back in. But I do recommend scattering them in various places around the crib so that like it's easy for them to find. But if he doesn't yet know how to put it in his mouth, I recommend doing practice with that during the day. And what time is it appropriate for children to stop napping? Okay, so this, it's a bit of a loaded question because it, it very much depends on the child, whether yeah. they are a high sleep total baby, a low sleep total baby, um, what else, what other activity they have during the day. Every kid is very different. So like I said, I have three kids. My oldest, by the age of three, like the minute she hit three, like that was it for naps. <laughs> My middle guy, he will be four next month. And he is still napping and we wake him from his naps. Oh my God, so amazing. two kids in the same house with very similar sleep schedule, different nap needs. And so there is no like hard, hard answer as to when they should stop napping. It's really about what their needs are. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll know if, it, if they're not ready. Like if you cut their nap and they become like little monsters because they're just so exhausted that all you're seeing is tantrums and everything's a battle then you might want to look at putting that nap back in. And on the flip side, if you're attempting to do nap and they're literally just not falling asleep, they might be ready to drop it. And there's also sort of that middle ground where you can test capping the nap too. But there's no like age where you have to say, okay, this kid needs to stop napping. Yeah, no hard and fast rules about... Absolutely. Yeah, because I mean, adults, some adults nap and some don't too. Yep. So you have to... Mostly husbands, but... Uh... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> What can I do to get my almost three month old to stay asleep for longer than 30 minutes when I put her down at night? I put her down at seven and she's not asleep for the night until 10 or later. 
She won't go to sleep in the bassinet, sleepy but awake. She needs ah. to be fully asleep. Okay, so sleepy but awake, awake, drowsy but awake, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> I don't know how much we're censoring what I'm saying here today, but it's complete BS. It sets parents up for failure. Like this mom, she thinks she's doing something wrong because the baby won't go to sleep, drowsy but awake. Babies don't go to sleep drowsy but awake. Unicorn babies, maybe. Like you might find <laughs> one baby in a million who will do that. But how many times have you seen moms talk about this whole drowsy but awake thing? It doesn't work. So I have no issue with parents holding their child to sleep and then transferring them. It will reduce that issue of the drowsy but awake and potentially might give you a longer stretch of sleep. But again, at three months old, short sleep cycles are, are normal. At nighttime, you'd like to see longer ones. And so I would want to look at the whole daytime schedule to make sure the baby isn't overtired. Um, but don't make drowsy but awake the gold standard because the likelihood that it's going to work is pretty slim and you're just going to be frustrated when it has nothing to do with you or your baby. I wonder where it comes from then, the suggestion. Okay, you like, do you want my whole opinion on where it actually comes from? Yes, I'm actually okay. curious. So if you look at where the vast majority of sleep information comes from and where all of these big you know, sleep techniques come from, like Ferber and Cry It Out, for example, the vast majority of them, A, were created by men, <laughs> and B, were created in a time where there were different expectations of women. And so most of the research that we have that dictates the sleep plans that we expect parents to follow comes from a time when, you know, women were just starting to enter the workforce. Men had certain requests of their wives. And so there was this gold standard of getting solitary sleep from babies so that the women could do other things. <laughs> and the vast majority of the techniques were not written by women and they were not written by people who actually had any experience on the ground in putting babies to sleep. You know, if you look, I, I actually think I have it saved to my highlights on Instagram. I have a whole bunch of quotes from books from like the early, you know, 1920s, 1930s, where a lot of the sleep research comes from that talks about, you know, don't, don't smile with your baby. Like just give them a pat on the head if they've done something nice and what? then send them on their way. Yeah. It's all about not giving them closeness and contact and connection and building their need for, you know, with air quotes, self-soothing and independence, right. which are not reasonable things to expect from babies. And so I really believe that a lot of the things that we hear that parents should or shouldn't be doing when it comes to sleep comes from a time when we didn't know what we do now about childhood development. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you look at sleep from a developmental perspective, which is what I do with my clients, and you look at things from an attachment perspective and how that factors into development, it changes the whole picture in terms of what sleep looks like. And it doesn't make sense to do something like Ferber because separating your child is only going to make things worse. It's not going to make it better. Mm -hmm. And it's going to teach them that if they need you, you're not going to come. And I don't think any parent ever consciously makes the decision to send a message to their child like, hey, I'm not here for you. No, but that's what that's effectively doing, right? And yeah. so I think that's where a lot of that comes from is this idea of women being told that they need to service their husbands and not their children <laughs> and and pressure to get back into the workforce because if you think of it like if you look yeah. you know obviously in Canada we're very lucky that we have much more flexibility when it comes to taking care of our own our own children because we have the maternity leave benefits that we do yes. but if you look at you know what parents in the states go through where they're being forced back to work after six or eight or 12 weeks it's no wonder that sleep training is popular because yeah. you have to get your kid to sleep so that you can go back to work 
so um, that you can sleep right exactly so and so you can be productive and that's what it comes down to it's about being productive and so i think that that's where a lot of it comes from is it's not in service of the family unit it's in service of the economy and that is often unfortunately the cases with many health topics especially yep. women's health like yep I, I remember learning about like the pap smear and how yep. the whole mechanism behind the pap smear and the tool behind the pap smear is all made by a man. Of course it is. Because it's more accessible. Right. What woman would ever design that? Exactly. Right. Like, so, and it's the same with like birthing in lithotomy position on your back with your yep. like feet in the stirrups. That's yep. to help your doctor more than it is to help you. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of things like that where we We've kind of just held on to these like archaic standards yep. and they have no science behind them yep. at all. <laughs> yep. Yep. But, yeah. That's how I feel about this too. I think that a lot of these techniques are stuck in a time where we're not applying what we know now. Yes, exactly. And like develop and like you said, developmental like studies has gotten so much bigger now. We know so yep. much more than we used to. So it's really important to keep that stuff in mind when we're working with clients about sleep because 100% central to it yeah couldn't agree more and how do you move your baby's bedtime up my 11 week old goes to sleep at 10 p.m I try moving it up in small increments but she'll not go to sleep before then so it's really got to do with the whole schedule you're not going to be able to just move bedtime on its own without looking at all of the naps um, a bedtime of 10 p.m., I wonder what time the last nap is. Right. I, it really would depend on the whole schedule. You have to move everything together, right? Like if you just move one piece, other things are going to fall out of line too. And so I'd want to know what naps look like during the day, what the sleep environment looks like, um, when baby's being fed, all of those things to really get a better picture of how we would move bedtime around. Makes sense. Four-month-old needs to be rocked to sleep and still wakes up when being transferred. Is that still normal and okay at his age? Yes. Yes, 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 <laughs> yes. I have no issue with rocking to sleep. I, again, like if it works for you and it works for your baby, there's no reason to stop. If it's no longer working for you, like you don't physically want to continue rocking, for example, mm -hmm. that's when we look at making changes. But I don't like to fix things that are not broken. And so if your baby is better at falling asleep when you're rocking, then keep doing that. If it's an issue in terms of the transfer. Um, first of all, you should look at my Instagram because I actually have yes. a video where my husband recorded me on the monitor transferring my son into his crib. So you can see the technique that I use. I always recommend putting like feet and bum down first and not head first because that often wakes them up. But you have to wait for your baby to be in a deep enough sleep that they will be able to transfer. So every baby has like a different you know, cue that lets you know that they're in a deep sleep. <laughs> With my kids, I always waited for that like deep breath. I'd always hear like... <sighs> Yeah. And then I can put them down. Does your daughter do that too? She does do that. And actually yeah. that's how I know when I put her down after as well. She usually lets out like another sigh. And I'm yeah. like, okay, she's fully asleep. I can leave now. Yeah. So a lot of babies do that. And that's a good measure of when they're going to be ready to be put down. And so it might take a little bit more time in terms of getting used to figuring out what that is for your baby. But I don't think you need to stop rocking to sleep if it's working for you just because of the transfer. I'd rather see you work on like, you know honing in your transferring skills mm -hmm. and your video is really good that's actually what I used when I was having trouble transferring. oh really amazing I love yeah, that yeah. <laughs> so, we, that's so great. I move my one hand at the one time exactly one the yeah it works really well <laughs> oh good I'm so glad 
like, can it be normal for a five month old to sleep through the night? Can it be normal? Yes. Is it common? <laughs> no. Mm-hmm. Um, what you sometimes see, okay, listen, first of all, you'll see a lot of people who say they're five month old sleep through the night because they sleep trained, but they're probably not actually sleeping through the night. They're probably still waking and just not signaling. But in general, if you are responsive to your baby and they're sleeping in longer stretches, there's nothing wrong with that as long as they're still on their growth curve and it's not affecting any feeding issues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes what I do see is parents are being told to do longer stretches at night and to cut out nighttime feeds and it's too early and they then have a growth spurt, but mom's milk supply has been affected because she's completely cut out night feeds. Right. And so that could potentially be an issue. But if you have a baby who's sleeping through the night at five months and it's consistent and they're still on their growth curve and there's no developmental concerns or anything like that, I say like just bask in the glory of having a baby who actually sleeps, but mm-hmm. don't gloat about it to your friends because it's going to piss them off. Exactly. Yeah. That's <laughs> sage advice right there. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, can you give any suggestions for weaning nighttime feeding? So now that works perfectly off the last question. Right. Or do you just have to wait it out? Baby okay, is so four months old. Four months? Mm-hmm. Don't do any weaning at night at four months old. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I would not recommend that, especially if you're nursing. Bottle feeding is a bit of a different situation, but I still think at four months old, babies still have nutritional needs at night. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of if the baby is a breastfed baby... I would absolutely not recommend night weaning at four months. Um, When I do night weaning, I first look at what the daytime feeding schedule looks like to make sure that the baby is getting enough calories during the day. Um, I look at the baby's age. I look at if they're bottle fed, I look at how much they're eating. But at four months, I wouldn't recommend weaning from breast or bottle feeding. I have done a a certification in breastfeeding support and education from Doula Canada. So I have a little bit of a background in that. So I feel comfortable in helping families um, do night weaning in older babies when it's clear that they are getting their nutritional needs met during the day. Um, But even then, unless it's like a really old baby or toddler, I usually don't recommend fully, fully weaning um, from night feeds. I usually look at things like a dream feed or, you know, let's, let's find ways to support the baby back to sleep at the first wake of the night and then feed at the second wake of the night. Mm -hmm. Thoughts on moving baby over to their own room before six months. She's a noisy sleeper. Okay. So like we said before, it is recommended to have baby um, in the parent's room for a year, but at least for the first six months. So if it's getting to a point where baby's so noisy that mom and dad are really just struggling to sleep, then I think it's reasonable to consider making that switch. Mm-hmm. But the only thing that I will say is that if your baby is a noisy sleeper, I'd actually like to know what exactly is going on. Like, is it a mm-hmm. grunting issue? Is it a breathing issue? Because if they're noisy because they're snoring, then I would say, A, I wouldn't move them because I'd want to keep an eye on their breathing. But more importantly, I would like to look at the cause for snoring. And most of the time, the cause for snoring in infants has to do with tongue function and potentially an oral restriction. Mm -hmm. And so I often refer out to a pediatric dentist to evaluate whether or not there is a tongue tie um, or lip tie that's potentially impacting the baby's breathing. And so I would want to know exactly what's going on there in terms of the, the noise level coming from the baby before I would make any recommendation to move the baby to their own space. And tips for surviving the nine month sleep regression. I actually just experienced this, so it's really <laughs> late for me. But okay, so first of all, I don't like to call it a regression. I call it a progression yes. because babies are progressing. And so anytime we see any of these developmental leaps, 
it is a sign that babies are developing normally, that they are changing and growing. And so as frustrating as it can be as a parent to deal with sleep interruptions, I think that if you keep in the back of your mind that this is actually a good thing, that Mm -hmm. it makes things a little bit easier for families. So that's number one. Number two, again, I go back to that self-care piece in that I think that especially when things are challenging, the more you can take care of yourself, the easier it will be to handle sleep deprivation. And so I always recommend to parents to lean into that self-care piece um, anytime there's any kind of sleep progression. Mm-hmm. Nine months specifically, I also like to look at the separation anxiety piece because that's usually when you start to see separation anxiety. Yes. And so a lot of the time, if you sort of handle dealing with the baby's attachment needs, it can help with the sleep as well. But I also don't want to see an overtired baby. So that goes back to the whole idea of potentially doing contact naps um, and that idea of like sleep by any means necessary just so that you're not dealing with an overtired baby. But the biggest thing I think is recognizing what's going on and the cause behind it um, and sort of making space for that in your head, taking care of yourself and making sure that your baby's not getting overtired. And do you have any suggestions in regards to the separation anxiety, like working on that during the day? So I definitely think giving babies the ability to have that closeness and contact and connection with the primary caregiver is super critical. You can also do things like we were talking about earlier in terms of like playing games in their sleep space so that they can see that it's safe. So, you know, if you're having issues at night where they wake up and they're screaming because they want you and they're fine when you get there, you can play a game where you say, okay, mommy's going to leave the room now. And you like peek around the corner of the door frame and then come back in mm-hmm. so that they, they start to learn that if they're looking for you, that you're going to come. You're going to come. And I think the big thing is being responsive. And that's, I think where the sleep training concept sort of comes into conflict with what I do, because I think that if you're looking at things from the perspective of separation anxiety and the baby's crying at night, the answer isn't to say, okay, well, we're just gonna have to let them continue crying because that's the only answer to making this stop. You look at it and say, okay, baby's crying for a reason. That's their way of communicating. What is it that they're trying to communicate? And how can we make sure that we're servicing those needs so that they feel comfortable separating at night? Yeah, that's that's why I couldn't do Ferber because I felt like I can't, like she must be crying for a reason if she's just continuously crying. Because I mean, during the day, babies cry and sometimes they stop because they are just crying because they want something like superficial that they can get for themselves or right or they just want like a little bit of extra attention or something um so you know that they're able to kind of like deal with those issues on their own so if they're crying like inconsolably i feel like how can you just I don't yeah. know. It, yeah. It's totally a parental choice and I don't judge anyone for I was just going to say, I understand why some parents choose it Absolutely. because they feel very stuck and they don't know that there's another option. But at the end of the day, I've never spoken to a parent who has sleep trained who said, oh, it was such a breeze. No big deal. Parents no. always say it was so tough, but it was worth it in the end. And so I, I lean into the it's so tough part and say, if it was that tough on you, imagine how it was for your baby. And let's look at ways that we can, you know, educate you to support them back to sleep when you run into a progression again, so that you don't have to resort to crying. old on Saturday she was born four weeks early so her adjusted age is one week will she take longer to sleep better at night because she's a preemie so again every baby's different but typically speaking yes I wouldn't do anything with a baby who is 
adjusted to one week of age. No, <laughs> I think I think expecting it to be a free for all at that point is really normal. But yeah. yes, it could take longer. Again, like when you look at things from a developmental perspective, she's going to be at a different point developmentally than what you would expect of a baby of her age because when you adjust it, she's still a few weeks behind. And actually, one of the things that I love. I find it so, so accurate is the Wonder Weeks app. Have you heard of it? Yeah, yeah, actually. I think we talked it. about it. Yeah, yeah, we use it. It is phenomenal. I find it incredibly accurate for determining when a baby is in a developmental leap. Mm-hmm. Um, but they use the due date to determine when babies are in leaps, yes. not their birth date. So that's a really good example of why you have to rely on their, you know, their adjusted age and not their actual age. Someone else asked best practices for a transition from two to one nap. (laughs) Okay. So the two to one nap is really, really tricky because Mm -hmm. it means from going, having two breaks in the day where they're able to catch up on their sleep to having two really long stretches of awake time. So it is a really, really tough one. And I think that what happens a lot of the time is babies hit that 12 month progression And with progressions, we know the sleep gets worse. And so parents assume, oh, they must be ready to switch to one nap. And a lot of the time it's not the case. And so I would make sure that you are keeping an eye on whether they are truly ready for that transition or whether there's something else going on that's a temporary issue that's making it seem as though they need to switch to one nap. But if they are ready for one nap, you have to sort of do things slowly. So the first thing I always recommend is rather than going cold turkey from two naps down to one nap is to cap the first nap and find a way to like you said sometimes have to play around with it to see if you have to cap it based on the clock you have to cap it based on the length of time that they're sleeping but first try to shorten the first nap before Mm -hmm. you just drop it entirely so that you give baby like a slower transition into that one nap so that it's not like you know dealing with like a crazy overtired baby by the time it gets to bedtime because they're just not used to having that long of a wake window yeah that makes sense I feel like that would be very shocking for anyone to lose like a big chunk of sleep. Exactly. And somebody asked, why is my nine month old waking at four to 5 a.m. consistently insisting on being held? They go to bed at between 6.30 and 7. Is this a phase? He has also started crying every time it's time for him to go down. Is it separation anxiety? So if the baby is nine months old, the first thing I would be looking at is the nine month sleep progression, mm-hmm. um, which obviously is going to interrupt sleep and it's going to cause separation anxiety. Babies are in their lightest state of sleep in those early morning hours. So it's not atypical to see a lighter sleep where they're you know more easily woken up, where they don't want to go back to sleep, where they need more support to go back to sleep. So the likelihood is, is that it's a phase, but usually progressions don't last more than a couple of weeks. And so if it becomes a pattern where it's been going on for a while and it continues for a while, then I'd want to look at the whole schedule and see if, if potentially the bedtime is too early for the baby. Like if they are only able to get, let's say 10 hours of sleep a night and they're going to bed at 6:30 and they're waking at 4:30 can we shift the schedule around so that they're going to bed a little bit later and waking up a little bit later? That's not the right approach for every baby. So again, I want to see the whole schedule. So please reach out to me if that was your question, but it could be, uh, you know, from the sleep progression, it could be that um, the schedule needs adjusting and it still is always a possibility that overtiredness is causing early morning rises. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's hard to say for sure without seeing the schedule, but those are the first few things that I would look for. 
And can you give an example of a sleep or nap schedule that would work for a five-month-old, three months adjusted? So those are kind of two different questions. <laughs> um, three months adjusted, I would very much just follow baby's cues. I wouldn't try and put baby on any kind of schedule because they're still too young for that. Mm -hmm. At five months, you're usually still seeing, well, you are seeing at least three naps a day. Some cases you're still seeing four naps a day. So it kind of depends on baby's wake time. So if baby's waking at, let's say like, 6 30 in the morning for example mm -hmm. you're probably not going to get more than about uh, an hour and 45 minutes to a two hour wake window in the morning so 6 30 you're probably looking at like an 8 30 a.m nap um and i'm talking like like best case scenario here because again like it's hard to say you know at three months adjusted are you going to get an hour and a half nap at a baby probably not probably but not right so it's hard to say but let's say you had a baby who was really good at napping mm -hmm. and they're five months old and they're waking at 6 30 a.m i would say nap from like 8.30 to 10, for example, and then do nap two around lunchtime. So like, you know, 12, 12, 15, that kind of thing. Again, for an hour and a half, and then do a cat nap in the late afternoon. So let's say like 4.30ish, and then look at like a 6.30 bedtime, that kind of thing. But it kind of all depends on what time of day they wake up and whether or not you're getting long naps out of them. Well, that's all the questions that I got. That was a Those lot. Those were good questions. But they were good questions. Lots of variety. So Yeah. So I would say if anybody has more questions for me or you want to like further look into any of the questions that you asked and you want more details, then please reach out to me. Um, you can find me on Instagram at Official Sleeping Beauties. Uh, my website is sleepingbeauties.ca. I'm always happy to, you know, work with families to come up with an approach and a, pa a package that makes sense for your needs. I do have like my most popular packages that I usually recommend are listed on my website, mm -hmm. um, but I'm always happy to customize. And I think that the most important thing that I want people to take away from our conversation is that, you know, it's okay to ask for help. It's mm -hmm. a non-judgmental zone. It doesn't matter to me what you've done in the past. It matters to me where you want to go in the future. And I just want to make sure that like parents are doing what they can to, you know, feel the best for themselves and also to care for their babies. And so I'm always happy to, to work with families who, you know, need to have an outside person sort of take another look at things and see how I can help. Thanks for listening to the Elephant in the Womb podcast. If you like this podcast, make sure to show us some love whatever way you can. Like, comment, and subscribe. You can also visit the website at www.elephantinthewomb.ca and subscribe to the blog email list for blog and podcast updates.